Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class Hector Cafferata. Cafferata was part of the 2nd Platoon Fox Company, serving in the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment during the Korean War. Specifically, we're going to talk about actions on November 28th, 1950. That's the first you know, full day of the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. And this is a crazy story, but I think it's worth saying right now, I'm going to set the stage. The outcome of the Korean War, I believe the outcome of the Korean War, hinged on Hector Cafferata and his actions on that day, November 28th, 1950. And we're going to spend the episode today backing that up and explaining why I feel that way. So to back up a little bit and talk about the Korean War at a high level, remember after the Second World War, Korea was split between North and South. North was going to be supported, backed, protected in a sense by the Soviet Union, and then the South would be protected and helped to rebuild by Western democracies, namely the United States, especially in this sense. And in 1950, in June of 1950, North Korea decides they're going to unify the peninsula under their control. So they invade South Korea. There's tanks rolling across the border in June of 1950. This is not a um, peaceful reunification, right? They're going to do it by force. And pretty quickly, the United Nations, newly formed United Nations, kind of international peacekeeping bodies, kind of the idea there to avoid something like the Second World War. But here we are five years later, having to use them in a forceful manner. The United Nations responds, the United States responds, and we're going to put troops on the ground in Korea to push back the North Korean forces. Essentially, you know, step one, let's let's liberate South Korea from North Korean forces. That's the first thing on the docket. Well, for the first few months of the war, you know, U.S. forces, U.N. forces are landing pretty quickly. But for the summer into really throughout the summer, we're not doing a great job. We're, we're barely holding on for a period of time there. I think a nice way to say it is we are building up our forces. And we are. We're constantly building our capabilities in that area, in, in and around um, South Korea, to the point where by early fall, September, and definitely in October, we're able to launch a counterattack. And that counterattack now is going to be pushing North Korea out of South Korea. And as we start pushing, this is a time where we, especially in the South, have gained air superiority and naval superiority. And we start rolling back North Koreans pretty quickly. They're overextended. Um, They didn't have, they weren't working with local support like the U.S., U.N., and, and South Korean forces, of course, were. And they were very vulnerable to air attacks. Again, air superiority has its benefits. It's very difficult to resupply entire armies if you can't move things by rail or if you can't move things during the day. So the forces weren't getting the supplies they needed. They weren't getting the food, the ammunition, the material, the replacement the replacement people that they needed to continue to fight. They were pretty weakened by September, October of 1950. So when the UN launches this counterattack to kind of break out from the Pusan perimeter in the south, it's pretty successful, and we're rolling back the North Koreans pretty quickly. Almost a little bit, um, maybe a way to say it is we get a little overconfident. And the war aims you see start to shift a little bit. And now that we're seeing success, 
we actually push past the boundary of North Korea and South Korea. Now North Korea is entirely back in their country and we continue to push. And this will go on until about late October when China decides enough. So China shares a border with North Korea. South Korea is a peninsula, but North Korea has a border kind of north and northwest portion of the country with China. And of course, China was a supporter of North Korea. There's a very close alliance there. But as you know, as close as that alliance is, China certainly doesn't want a unified Korea on South Korean terms sharing their border or United Nations terms or United States terms, right? So China has an interest in the outcome of this conflict. And by fall of 1950, you see something take form, take shape. It's called the People's Volunteer Army or um, PVA. You'll see Chinese People's Volunteer Army, a couple different ways to phrase it. But this is the Cold War. So remember, it's going to be something where the actual state can kind of deny it because we don't, nobody. And this is an issue throughout the Korean War. There's this constant thought of U.S. and China, the U.S. and China getting into a major conflict. And you can see where nuclear weapons would be used again. And the Soviet Union gets involved. And now we're talking World War III. We're four years removed from World War II and we're into World War III. So that's always been a concern, always been a concern. That was a concern throughout this conflict. And the way that China mitigated that was they said, hey, well, there's this volunteer army. They're not our soldiers. We can't control them. These are just people going to fight for their brothers and sisters over there in Korea. It was, I mean, it was an open secret, maybe is the way to say it. They weren't technically Chinese military, but they were equipped, trained. There were leaders coming from the Chinese military. It was the Chinese military for all intents and purposes. Um there was just enough of a little bit of gray for deniability, maybe is the way to say it. But for what it's worth, that might have kept us out of World War III. So I'm kind of kind of making fun of, of the idea of the People's Volunteer Army, but but maybe maybe that's one of the reasons we didn't get into a much larger conflict, right? So, anyways, by October of 1950, China says, enough. We can't have these uh, these UN and US forces on our border. They start pushing back and they stop dead in the tracks, the American advance. I mean, the U.S. is is chasing a defeated North Korean military, and we run headfirst into fresh Chinese troops, and it stops us quickly. By November, the U.S. is setting in around, we're still not done with our advance. We've slowed a little bit, but we're not sure at this point what the Chinese involvement is. Remember, it's not like China declared war, and all of a sudden there's aircraft overhead and and ships out at sea and tanks rolling. We don't really know what the Chinese involvement is in November of 1950. And the U.S. forces, the U.S. and U.N. forces, it's primarily, I believe at this point, U.S. and South Korean troops set up in an area known as, that we refer to now as the Chosen Reservoir. Now, the reservoir is a body of water, man-made reservoir, I believe. And there are roads that go around it, but it's nasty, nasty terrain like really steep, really narrow to the point where it really restricts movement to certain areas. So you've got the reservoir. We're not going to go across this body of water. We have Marines and army units up here. It's not a big enough body of water to have any type of, of military ship, I guess is the way to say it of note. At least it's, it's a middle of the land kind of landlocked big lake kind of thing. Um, and when you think of Chosen Reservoir and you think of the road system surrounding it, very loosely think of a Y. In the mouth of the Y is the reservoir. 
and you have shooting off to the west or to the left one road that goes around it and off to the east or to the right another road and they come together at the base and move south now the united states and u.n forces are moving south to north china is generally moving north to south a little bit of northwest coming in from the northwest as well so that's a good a good way to think about this is we're kind of aligned around the southern portion up to you know the three o'clock and nine o'clock position around the chosen reservoir and we're setting in there but we're preparing to continue the attack so this isn't a defensive posture it's a set in and temporary halt maybe a little bit of a longer halt it's long enough to establish supply points supply dumps there's an airfield not far from or in this general vicinity it's a pretty rudimentary airfield it'll prove crucial in this battle, especially when we're talking about getting casualties out. But by the end of November of 1950, in and around the Chosen Reservoir, we're talking about approximately 30,000 American troops. Now, on the eastern side or the right side, if you're looking at a map of the reservoir, is going to be predominantly Army forces, Task Force Faith, or previously Task Force McLean, Regimental Combat Team Strength. And the west side is really the bulk of the forces. That's going to be the 1st Marine Division. And it's going, to make up, um, it's going to make up the bulk of the forces spread across from the west down to the southern portion. Again, looking at that Y and the roads that are crucial to stay open. Again, this isn't the Midwest United States where you can just drive wherever you want. There's certain areas. I mean, it's mountain passes. There's certain areas where you have one option, one road. And you can't take those trucks over the mountains. You might not be able to get your people over those mountains. They're so steep. So what we're going to see by the end of November 1950 is the U.S. set up in and around the Chosen Reservoir getting ready to continue their attack. This is the time where the U.S. is talking about a home-by-Christmas offensive. So the war is in a different place in our minds. We don't know how, again, we don't know how involved the Chinese are going to be, but we've been watching the North Koreans just run away from us. And that's a bit of an exaggeration, but we've been very, very successful for a few months here, we can see how, look, Christmas is in a month. We're talking about a home by Christmas offensive. How optimistic are we? Well, this is the time period that China says, not only are we going to stop you from continuing your advance, we are now going to push you out of North Korea. Down the road, they would have additional objectives to remove the United Nations and U.S. forces entirely from the peninsula. But right now, in the end of November 1950, the goal for China is going to be to at least push UN forces out of North Korea. They decide the way they're going to do that is to encircle certain troops in and around the Chosen Reservoir. They think the number of troops there is actually smaller than it is, but either way, they're going to hit it with an overwhelming force. In and around Chosen, you're going to have, again, around 30,000 American troops, and they're going to be hit with approximately, or 30,000 total troops, I'm sorry, not just American they're going to be hit with an estimated 120,000 Chinese. That number has been up for debate, but they were weakened. They were, they were hampered by the cold weather. They were hit by airstrikes. But I think even if you say it's half, even roll it back to 60,000, there's still you know a two-to-one advantage over the Americans that aren't in a defensive position necessarily. So either way, the Americans have chosen, the UN forces and, and the South Korean forces have chosen are in for it. In order to get to this area secretly and quietly, remember we're talking about how nasty of terrain it is, how nasty the weather is, to get there quietly for a surprise attack, 
you can't drive tanks down roads. You can't be hauling artillery pieces um, through these mountain passes because the U.S. has air superiority. You'll get bombed, you'll get strafed, you'll get knocked out. You'll at least you know, be able to see that there's an attack coming. So the Chinese move at night. They move at night through some pretty nasty terrain, through sub-zero temperatures. And I want to set the stage for this piece right now without winter clothing. Think about moving around in sub-zero. Think about, you know, there's, there's tiers of this, right? Think about moving around in sub-zero temperature with proper clothing. That's pretty serious. How about not, you know, the perfect clothing, but if you've ever been somewhere and the temperature drops, we were in Minnesota a few years ago visiting some friends and the temperature was, or the wind chill was like minus 15. We had winter clothing, but it wasn't going to do anything. I mean, it, it helped, I guess, but you still don't want to be outside for very long. Imagine that, not just with some winter clothing and a hat and gloves, but nothing. The Chinese are going to be devastated by losses due to exposure before they even reach American lines. And that's why when I throw out that 120,000 troops, 120,000 Chinese troops, that's an estimate assuming that every one of those units hit the American lines in force, but they just didn't. It's hard to tell how much what the severity of their losses, but it was extreme. And it didn't stop when the attack started, right? Like if you're marching through knee-high snow with you know winter, summer clothing on, lightweight clothing on, maybe a shirt wrapped around your hands to try to keep it warm, but it's minus 20 out, that doesn't get better when bullets start flying. I mean, maybe you move around a little bit more, but but you're still you can still die from exposure die from exposure, not wounded, not have to be moved out of the front. You could die from exposure out there. And many, many, many Chinese troops died from exposure, simply moving to the American lines. Because of that, because they were willing to put up with that, they hit the Americans by surprise late on the night of November 27th, 1950. They weren't expecting that the U.S., no, that's not fair to say. Some U.S. commanders were expecting some kind of Chinese attack. Others weren't expecting it this volume. And this size, this magnitude, nonetheless, late on November 27th, the Chinese strike and they strike all up and down the American lines, really on the north and then all down the west of the reservoir. Now, remember, their idea is to cut off these units that are a little further north, kind of towards the, the, the mouth or the opening of the Y. And the way to do that, it's not that hard in this terrain. It's not that hard because the Americans don't have that many places they can go. They have to go south. They can't go west. There's Chinese troops there. They can't go north. There's Chinese troops there. They can't go east. The reservoir is there. They have to go south. So the Chinese don't have to overrun every position. If they overrun certain positions, they'll be in good shape. That brings us to the story of Private First Class Hector Cafarata. Cafarata is serving in a plussed-up rifle company, Fox Company, 2nd Platoon Fox Company, part of the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines. They are sent a little ways south of the rest of their regiment to an area referred to as, I'm going to destroy this, I'm sure, but the Tok Tong Pass, T-O-K-T-O-N-G. The Tok Tong Pass is, is south of the, you know, a major Marine position up towards the, you have, you know, two or so Marine regiments northwest most. They have one road to come back. Tok Tong Pass is a very narrow area that needs to be held because it's the only way out. Now, at the beginning of this battle or before the battle began, 
there wasn't the thought that we were going to have to, you know, book a hasty retreat. But of course, as we know with the chosen reservoir, that ends up being kind of the theme is how quickly can we get our people out of there? Can we get out of there at all? The Marines to the north of Tok Tong Pass, they're going to have to use this to move through. It's at least 8,000 and it might be more. You know, watching how the units are moving around at this time, at least 8,000. We're talking two regiments of Marines north of this pass that'll need to use it. The Chinese attack at night. Kafarada just showed up to this unit, by the way, just a few days earlier showed up to this unit. And the attack happens at night, which means the Kafarada has, you know, the Americans had some winter clothing. Again, I don't know how well prepared we were for this type of, you know, one of the most brutal winters that American military, American Marines, American soldiers have ever fought in. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to be out there in that today with the technology and equipment we have today. I can't imagine doing it 70 years ago. Kafarad is in his sleeping bag. In his sleeping bag, he has his boots off. He has his jacket off, right, to try to stay a little bit warmer. And the attack kicks off, and it's so, so close, so fast, and so violent that he doesn't have time to put his boots on or his jacket on. All right. That's setting the stage. Now, earlier, I said that I think Kafarada can be credited. I think you can you can look at this one man on this one day and say he turned the tide. Or not turned the tide, but the war hinged on what he did. And I want to back up a little bit and talk about that. Because it's not, he just found himself there. He didn't know it at the time. And I think it would probably take a while to look back and say, oh, that was a turning point. But I think you could make a movie about this to talk about just this one little incident because truly the war could have gone one direction or the other. And we don't get that throughout history. It's rare when we look at any military history to be able to pin it on one person. I mean, it's rare to look back and be able to pin, you know, the tide of the war shifting based off of a company of a hundred or a battalion of five to 700. I think if you really want to, you could look back maybe to the European theater in the second world war and say, if this division hadn't done this thing, maybe things would be different. A division, 10,000. But I mean, even in the Pacific Theater, if you look at Guadalcanal in 1942, during the attack on Henderson Field, when, when John Bassalone held the line and just devastated the Japanese ranks, if he hadn't held, maybe the Japanese would have pushed back. Maybe the Japanese would have kicked the Americans off Guadalcanal. But the war wouldn't have been over. The, we, that was so early in the conflict. We were still building up. We weren't even at peak force yet. We would have gotten right back into the fight pretty quickly thereafter. Not here. I think there's a fair argument, and we're going to keep hitting it a couple times here, that had this line not held, the outcome of the Korean War would have been much different. So Kafarada is, awoke, is, is awakened the morning of November 28th. So the Chinese are hitting all up and down the lines, some late on the 27th. For Kafarada, it's early on the 28th. Again, he gets up without boots, without a jacket, starts fighting. The position that he's holding, his squad is responsible for, and it's taking kind of the brunt of the enemy attack. And very quickly, his entire squad is either killed or severely wounded. There's a grenade that goes off right near one of their positions, and I don't know if it was temporarily blinded or permanently blinded one of his men. So the guy was, you know, in a combat situation, very limited in what you could do. So Cafferata says, hey, we got to get moving. We got to go find a good covered position. Hold on to my foot while we crawl. So imagine that crawling through this, this 
this firefight with a guy holding onto your foot to guide him to safety. They get to a little draw where there's some kind of a little depression where there's a couple more American Marines held up. They're wounded. They're not really able to participate in the fight. So Cafferata starts firing back, defending their position. He mentions in, in a handful of interviews how close the Chinese soldiers were. He starts firing back into the attacking Chinese soldiers. He's alternating, firing his rifle and batting back grenades that come in with an E-tool, with an entrenching tool. Now, the size enemy force that hits this pass is estimated to be a regiment in strength. A regiment, a Chinese regiment at this time should have been on or about 3,000. Let's assume they took some pretty serious casualties getting there, like severe, severe casualties. Put them at 2,000. Cafferata's company was 250. So they're on number 10 to 1. And that's, again, assuming 30% casualties for the Chinese before they even get there. So Cafferata facing down 10 to 1 odds, not 10 to 1 odds, outnumbered 10 to 1, facing fewer than 10 to 1 odds, or worse than 10 to 1 odds. Batting back grenades with an E-tool, why not use a machine gun? Remember those temperatures, sub-zero temperatures? The, The lubrication for the machine guns was freezing. They couldn't use them. He had to use his rifle, but he couldn't fire it fast enough. So he had these wounded Marines around him reloading rifles while he stood and fired into the enemy attackers. And then he passed the rifle down, pick up the new one, fire it, pass it, fire it, pass it. Did that for hours. And I just want to remind you, no boots, no jacket, sub-zero temperatures with grenades, mortars, and bullets landing all around. Eventually, as dawn starts to come, a grenade comes up near his position. Remember, this is much of this fighting is in the dark, is at night. A grenade lands near their position. Cafferata, again, I mean, I don't know how many he knocked out of there, 10 or more easily, grabs an enemy grenade that landed in their position, picks it up to throw it back. It detonates in the air and pretty severely wounds him in the hand and arm. But of course, as you can expect, he doesn't get evacuated. I'm not sure that there was much of an option to be evacuated at this point in the fight, but he stays with his men, kind of bandages it up deals with it, continues to fight. As dawn comes, he decides that the the attack starts to die down a little bit. The Chinese weren't attacking as much during the day due in part to the American air superiority. They were easier targets in the day. So they wouldn't attack. They did attack during the day plenty, but for these large scale surprise attacks, you tend to see them kick off usually around the night. So the dawn starts to come. So Cafferata gets up and decides I'm going to go Um, get my boots, get my jacket, right? It's freezing outside. So he starts moving back to their tent area where they had their boots or where they were, you know, the sleeping bag in the camp area. And as he's just walking around looking for this stuff, he starts to hear noises and realizes that he's being shot at. Again, he's just trying to get his boots. You know, it's freezing outside. In the process, he's shot in the arm. The enemy attack had pretty well died down, but there were still snipers around. So it's not like he's walking around carelessly in the middle of a firefight. But a sniper sees an opportunity. This guy walking around, they're going to take their shots. Hits Cafferata in the arm, breaks his arm, kind of shatters his arm. He's not going to be able to do much in this fight anymore. And is, I read a couple different accounts, evacuated. And one said that he kind of came to on uh, in a tent being, being treated. But either way, there wasn't much of an option at that point to say, I'm not going back to the rear. Um, he was moved back to the rear for treatment. 
he was treated. He was wounded. He, or he excuse me, he was, he was treated. He survived the war and he, he, he made it back home. Now, after Caffarata moved back out of that area, his commanding officer and, and other folks within the unit came over, kind of reinforced lines and see what was going on, check in on their men, you know, redistribute ammunition, pull the wounded out. And they looked down this valley, this narrow draw that was leading up to Caffarata's position. There were over 125 dead enemy soldiers laying within short distance of Caffarata's where he, where he lay or where he had set up his position. When they sent up the citation for the Medal of Honor, they cited something like 15 enemy soldiers because the commander said, listen, we saw it over 125. And the only person in that position firing their weapon that night because the others were all severely wounded or killed was Caffarata. Caffarata killed over 125 Chinese soldiers that night. That night, that morning, they didn't think anybody would believe it if they wrote it up. They thought that would be, they would think that we're exaggerating. So we need to go pretty far in the other direction just to where it's an incredible story by itself. And we'll go with that. That action was written up. Caffarata came home and for that act, he was awarded the Medal of Honor in 1952. Now, why at the beginning of the show did I say Caffarata may have changed the balance of the Korean War, may be responsible for the outcome of the Korean War? Because he pushed back that attack in that small draw, killing over 125, he bought his unit enough time to reinforce, to resupply, to dig in and start to pull back from certain areas, keeping that pass open. If he had been killed or had retreated or, or, or whatever, anything other than what actually happened, and the Chinese cut that off at the pass, at the uh, Tok Tong Pass, they've now surrounded at least 8,000 U.S. Marines north of that position. And I, I don't know. It's hard to imagine another scenario than, it's hard to imagine a scenario where those Marines then break out and are able to keep fighting. Odds would have been very stacked against them. And I think it's fairly realistic to assume that those 8,000 could have been surrounded and annihilated. Best case taken prisoner, but there weren't, that didn't necessarily mean a lot of positive things in the Korean War. We suffered about 2,500 killed at Chosen Reservoir. You'll see the numbers vary a lot, and it's tricky to nail down because what if somebody gets frostbite and dies later, or the dies of their wounds later, and there are a lot missing? For argument's sake, right now, we'll say 2,500. If you add 8,000 to that number, two Marine regiments completely wiped out. I don't know that we can look at Chosen as anything but an unmitigated disaster. There'd be reports coming from the United States saying, what are you doing? Get out of there. Fall back. Why are we in Korea fighting this war, maybe? That would have been 10,500 casualties instead of killed. Not casualties, but killed instead of the 2,500. And I think it's possible at that point there would have been this feeling of overwhelming victory in the Chinese. They may have pushed harder, tried to close the war, tried to wrap things up sooner. And I think it would have just been a devastating loss for the United States. Instead, they were able to pull back, move out of Chosen, which is the famous story of some of these Marine units in the 1st Marine Division, being able to pull back out of Chosen to live to fight another day, reestablish lines as they continue to move south, and eventually would be able to hold the Chinese off for an armistice in 1953. But 
had Cafferata not held his line on November 28th, 1950, I think you could have seen up to 8,000 additional Marines lose their lives. And the Korean War may have taken an entirely different turn. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.